Acts chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. If you have a blue or a white Bible, does anybody need a Bible? We got some up here. If you want to come grab one, if you don't have one, you need one. Uh, Acts chapter 5, it's on page 532 if you got a white or a blue Bible that we gave you. And uh, we're going to start up here. Uh, I actually kind of lied a little bit. We're actually going to begin in chapter 4, uh, verse 32, so just above chapter 5. Um, but we're going to be there in a second. Um, I have gone to Belize City um, probably seven or eight times. Uh, we have been on mission trips there. We established a relationship with the church there. Really love the leaders. Really love the people. Um, it's awesome. It's uh, like some of these other countries that don't do traffic laws quite like we do them. So the first time we showed up, uh, they rented a 15-passenger van for us. And like, you can drive it, Jared. And I was like, OK. And like, you're driving down the street, and people are just going everywhere, right? And you're getting passed on the right and on the left. And every time you like slow down at an intersection, people are like, why are you slowing down? And like, they don't have any traffic lights. It's all roundabouts. And it's just, it's chaos. People are all over everywhere. So I've been driving there for like four days. And uh, I remember one night, like a Friday night, we had been doing youth group. And we were driving home. Uh, and we're in, in the city. And uh, I looked over, and these two guys were arguing. Like, but they were still like 30 feet apart. And they were coming to like almost get close to each other. And they were going to fight or push each other or something. And there's a police officer coming the other way. And their police are these little four-door trucks. And the police flipped his lights on, hopped the median, went across the lane in front of me, up onto the sidewalk, and all four guys were out and had tackled one of the guys. Like, before they even did anything. They didn't even, like, punch each other or anything yet. It was like, we're not messing around. This is over. Right? Like, four guys. So it was just like, it was this mindset of just like, I don't know what the rules are. I don't think there are any rules. Like, traffic is just like, don't die. Good luck. And so, like, four days in, uh, I'm pulling out of this thing, and there's this huge traffic jam. There might have been an accident or something. Cars are backed up everywhere. And you know the Belizeans are in the back, and they're trying to help me. And they're like, no, no, if we go this way, then we can get there. And I was like, ah, I can't get that way. And there's traffic everywhere. And so I saw if I go the wrong way on the street for like 100 feet, then I could just turn right and get on this other road and get out of the traffic jam. And so I was, look, nobody's coming. So I go the wrong way. And from the back, the Belizeans are like freaking out. They're like, you can't go this way. And I was like, I've been driving here for four days. Nobody cares about any of these traffic laws. Why are you mad now? And it was this thing that I was like giggling to myself. Like, you can do whatever you want here. Like, why are you telling me I can't do that? Like, I understand that the sign says don't go that way. But nobody cares about any of the other laws. And so. It was funny to me. It was like, why, why is this one law the one you care about, but all the other ones are just like subjective? And sometimes when you read the Bible, that happens, right? You'll be going along. You'll be like, OK, we're getting this. And it's like stories and miracles and commands. And then all of a sudden, God's like, and you're like, whoa, why is that a big deal? And God makes a way bigger deal about something that you don't think's a big deal, or you don't know why it's such a big deal. You're just like, why is, this, why is he so mad? Why does this person have to die? Why is this punishment so severe? Why do he say that? And, and sometimes it'll be jarring. Sometimes it'll be unexpected. Sometimes it'll be like, where did that come from? And that's what we're going to hit in Acts chapter 5 this morning. You're just kind of going through, and you're like, oh, preaching, people get saved, miracles. And then we're going to hit 
huge consequence, and you're going to be like, whoa, what? Now, we could jump into that, but I think it might be helpful for us right before we get into that to talk about what our expectations are before we look at something that we didn't expect. What do you expect to happen when you worship or interact with God? Do you expect to run into things you don't understand? Like some people come to a relationship with God and they're like, yeah, I should understand all of it. And I'm like, well, then why would we worship him? If you could get it all, why would, why would we need him? Right? If, it, if we're worshiping you, what makes sense in your mind? Right? So there's this starting expectation of we should probably expect things that we don't understand as we get into it. And if we run into something we don't understand, then what do we do? Now, maybe you're more spiritual than I am, but I have this assumption that I'm always right. You know, pray for my wife. And um, we read these things and we get to something that we don't understand and we just always kind of assume, well, I'm right. And there's just the, 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 the fault is probably on them. Right? And when it comes to the Bible, this happens a lot. People read something in the Bible they don't understand. God makes a bigger deal of it than they understand. And they just go, oh, yeah, cute. That old Bible, such an outdated way of thinking, isn't it? Nobody thinks that's a big deal anymore. Nobody cares about it. We, we know so much more. We're so beyond that. Like the science has proven all of these things. Like God, just you kind of, the society as a whole kind of chuckles to themselves at how small-minded and old-fashioned the Bible is. And like we're so beyond that, God. And that's just our way of just kind of saying like we're right and you don't know what you're talking about, God. It's kind of similar to when uh, I interact with my kids, right? Just picture like I'm playing tag with my kids out in the front yard and like we're running around, we're chasing each other and like I'm it. So my little girl who's two, she's running from me and she's running fast and I'm almost going to get you. And she's like giggling and everything's fine. And then she runs over the sidewalk out into the street. And all of a sudden I go, get out of the street. Don't go in the street, Jordan. That's not okay. And in her mind, what's the big deal? I was running. I'm still running. I was giggling. I'm still giggling. In fact, a case could be made, Father, that this is a better running surface than the grass that I was just running on. <laughs> I don't know what your expectation. Like, everybody else that's playing tag is giggling and having fun, and you're not yelling at them, so why are you yelling at me? Well, it's your two, and you don't understand that the street is where cars are. But there's no cars now. It doesn't matter. You can't make a habit of running out into the street. And I, I don't expect you to understand that because you're two. But I do expect to make a bit. So the severity and the aggressiveness with which I handle that situation is because I know. Right? I know. And in fact, to say nothing to my child at that point would be very unloving. To not make a big deal about it would be the exact opposite of what a father should do. And usually, where the breakdown occurs in these types of situations is we're immature, and with immaturity comes two things. One, immature people don't know they're immature. Right? So that's always a battle, right? Are you immature? No. Right? You probably wouldn't know. And then the second thing about immaturity is you're scared of the wrong things when you're immature. 
maybe scared, maybe you're like, I'm not scared of anything. Okay, you're concerned about the wrong things when you're immature, right? When you get your license, what are you worried about? What kind of car am I going to drive? What's it going to look like? Is it going to be cool or not cool? And your parents are like, that's the last thing that you should be worried about right now. Like, don't die and don't kill anybody else, right? And then there's like 437 other things that you should be worried about before you should be worried about how cool your car is, right? But try that, try telling that to a 16-year-old. They won't have it. Why? Because they're immature. Like, not to, everybody's immature, like at some point. Like, I'm not bashing on you guys, but I'm just saying, like, there's a great example of being scared of or concerned about the wrong things, And when it comes to the scriptures and we see God making a really big deal about something, we should probably evaluate our hearts and realize we're concerned about the wrong things a lot of the times. It's very common for us to be scared of and concerned about the wrong things in our lives. So let's read, see what happens, see what we can learn about what it is that God cares so much about in this particular situation, starting in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need." Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So what is happening here is the church, who we discussed earlier in the chapters, is a collection of people who have had their hearts changed by the Holy Spirit. And as their hearts are changed, there's this tightening and also loosening that is taking place at the same time, right? So if you're writing notes, write tightening and loosening, okay? The tightening is told in verse 32. They were of one heart and one soul, okay? So they were knit together. They were unified together in an uncommon way. This was the tightening, like they were closer to God and closer to one another than they had ever been before. That's a natural function of the Holy Spirit changing somebody's heart. This extraordinary unity. To describe the group as having one heart and one soul is a very specific and very unique description. I think you'd agree. Like, there's friends of mine, but I wouldn't say we're one heart, one soul. And then there's another level of friendship or family or unity in Christ that is like, oh no, we're on the same page Right? We're unified in that way. Another reason that small groups are a great idea for you to catch that kind of a vision. Now, the tightening of unity comes in part because of the loosening of materialism. You see that? The group becomes tighter because they've loosened their grip on the things of this world. They're holding tightly to one another while simultaneously letting go of material possessions. Or what I'm going to call absurd generosity. If you're writing notes again, write absurd generosity. You could probably call it radical generosity, but everybody uses the word radical to call what they're doing radical in these days. So it's not really, I think it's, 
It's missing the point. And the point I want to get across by calling it absurd generosity is that it's the type of generosity that is of such a magnitude that it would have been looked down upon by other people. Like other people would look in and be like, you, that's, you shouldn't do that. Like that's ridiculous. That's actually too far. That's actually too generous. It's actually like there's a level that's acceptable and you've gone beyond that level. Now we do this in our world, right? There's things in our world that have like varying degrees. There's like levels of things. And usually uh, at the bottom level, everybody in the culture agrees that that's good. And then when we start to get to the top levels, you start to get opposition or, or looked down upon or people would call it absurd, even in generosity. I think of like, YouTube videos, my son's super into biking lately, right? And biking's a great example. Everybody who is able should probably ride a bike, right? If you see someone after church today riding a bike, you don't think like, what the heck? You think good for them. They're outside, it's sunny, they're getting some exercise, they're riding a bike, good for them, right? That's the first level. And the whole culture kind of agrees, like bike riding is a positive, right? We're not filling the world with gas. We're getting some exercise. It's sustainable. Good for you. Bike riding, A+. Plus, right? Then there's the next level of like mountain biking, right? Now we're like over rocks and trees and stuff. And if you are able, the, the world still looks like good for you, mountain biking. But there's a certain, probably a big portion of the population that's like, I'm not mountain biking. And if your 85-year-old grandfather was like, I'm going to go mountain biking, you'd be like, no, you aren't going mountain biking. You're going to break a hip. Right? So, so it's still like overwhelmingly positive as a culture, but the culture says like there's a segment that probably shouldn't be doing this. Right? Then you go to the next level of like people who are jumping bikes into the air. Right? And there's a much smaller group of people who are like, yeah, you should be able to do that. The rest of us are kind of like, we're not doing that. The, the wheels are staying on the ground. Right? This is, this is acceptable. It's more extreme. And then you get like these guys that do the Red Bull competitions in Moab and they like jump like 70 foot cliffs and then land on like this six inch board and then like backflip into the next thing. And everybody on planet Earth is like, that's incredible. And if your son was like, I'm going to do that, you'd be like, no, you're not. Right? You're just like, there's like this small, 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 small portion of the population that. Like, we're like, okay, you could do that, but nobody else should be doing it. And like, some people don't even like to watch that stuff, right? Like, I know people in my life that are like, mm, don't, I can't, like, especially live. And then there's even another level beyond that. And these people, everybody agrees is crazy, right? They like ride their bikes on top of buildings and stuff and like jump between buildings and like in the city, like riding on a train track and like over bridges and stuff. And you're like, okay, nobody should be doing that. Nobody in the culture is like, that's a good idea. We all watch the YouTube videos, but nobody's like, you should actually be doing that because you're going to die eventually when you do that stuff, right? And so we have these levels of things. What level of generosity is the church at in this story? What level of generosity is the church in 2021 at, usually? See, our tendency as a church is usually to stop, like, of the first two levels, where everybody's like, good for you, you give. 
good for you. You're kind of generous when it's easy and you have enough to supply your own needs. We hardly ever get to that part of the culture where people are like, I don't know if that's a great idea. And yet in this story, they're at that place where it's so extreme, so absurd, that like economists and stuff like that would look at this and be like, this is a terrible idea. You're going to go bankrupt. There's going to be a bunch of freeloaders. All the money's going to be gone. And that's actually what happens, right? If you fast forward, the church in Jerusalem is in dire need financially. At the end of this story, like later on, as Paul's going to write in the New Testament, he's like collecting money for the church in Jerusalem because people took advantage. And guess what? They don't care. Because God has so changed their hearts and so tightened their care for one another and loosened their care for materialism, they are engaging in absurd generosity. Absurd generosity. Generosity has always been a foundation of the church, and not just generosity, but generosity that the greater world looks around, it, around at and goes like, that's, that's, I don't know if you should be doing that. Like, this is the type of generosity that has been established at the very beginning of the church. Not like 20 years in, not like 100 years in, not like a century in. They were like, you know what? We have, a, we have a problem. Like, we need a PR specialist. Like, how can people view us better? No, very beginning, day one, their, their grip was tightened on one another and loosened on the things of this world. Jesus actually, actually, I'm going to skip that. Let's go here. Luke, who wrote the book, uses this man, Barnabas, as an example of how this unity for one another was tightening and grip on generosity, uh, a grip on the things of the world was loosening and it ended up in generosity. And this man, Barnabas, who's a Levite, which is a very good picture because Levites, if you read through your Old Testament, they didn't receive an inheritance of land. The Bible says God was their inheritance. So he doesn't have anything to fall back on. Right? He doesn't have any family property to fall back on. Like I was talking to a buddy of mine the other day, and he's like, yeah, my family owns like half of Oklahoma. And when, if something happens to me, I can always move back there. Like, good for you, man. Like, that's not really common in America in those days, but it was super common back in Israel in those days. Everybody had family land that they could go back to, except for the Levites. So for him to sell this property, it was a real step of faith. Right? This is like, no, 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 we are stepping into faith and meeting the needs of those people who are around us and at the same time loosening our grip of the things on the world. And maybe you're looking at that and you're, you're looking at Barnabas and you're like, wow, and, and you focus on the amount of money he gave, which is a huge amount of money. Like he sold property now. So we're talking like a house or land or something. Like this is not just like he had 20 bucks left over. Right? And that's good. I'm not, I'm not opposed to you focusing on how much he gave, or I'm not even opposed to you focusing on how generous he was. But here's what I actually want you to focus in on. How free does Barnabas look right now? How free does he appear? Like if you were to walk into Barnabas' life Hey, Barnabas, how you doing? Well, I'm just really stressed out about this and that, and I can't, I, I don't know what's going on with my family, and, and I just got this job situation. And so on. Does that sound like 
Well, you'd hear from Barnabas, a guy who just gave away this type of money. No, it, it, like that seems like it would be absurd. Like what Barnabas is, like the thing that he is portraying is this incredible, absurd freedom. Like he doesn't portray himself as this guy who's overloaded with the things of this world. And it's a common misconception that wealthy people are free people. It's a common misconception that wealth brings freedom. It actually doesn't. I, I tell you guys, probably 20 times a year, I spent uh, 10 years of my life uh, as a ski instructor in one of the most expensive ski areas in the country. And I spent a lot of time with really wealthy people, like top percentages of the United States. They're not the freest people. I've also spent lots of times on missions trips. And, and over and over and over, I get blown away at how some of the least wealthy people on planet Earth seem to be the freest, enjoying the most freedom, which is exactly what the Bible talks about, right? Jesus says, uh, be on your guard against covetousness. All right, we'll talk about that in a little bit. We don't, we aren't on our guard for the wrong thing, the right things very often. But Barnabas in this moment, in this picture, it does not look like a guy who is weighed down by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. His wealth is not a means to freedom until he gives it away. And now his heart is revealed as really free. So we have this incredible picture of Barnabas, incredible free man, right? Living uh, free from the trappings of materialism, living free to tighten his grip on his unity, a one heart, one soul with fellow believers. And then it gets weird. Here we go. Chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart you have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose and wrapped him and carried out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things." So this man, Ananias, and his wife, Sapphira, are apparently around this Christian church thing as it begins to take off. And initially, right, the church is small, and there's only the 12 apostles or maybe 120 in the upper room or, or, you know, it's small, but then it starts to gain a little traction. A few thousand people are joining the church. Now we've been reading this for a while, and there's over 10,000 people who have joined this at 
at minimum, probably. It says they were added daily, so it could be even further, uh, you know, 20,000 possibly. Uh, it's in this small area. The old city of Jerusalem is not big, so now it's becoming like a thing, a known thing, even maybe the cool new thing, right? It's attractive in its own way. There's a lot of people. It's like everybody's talking about it. It's gone from this like weird side thing to like a big thing in Jerusalem. And a couple weeks later, there's a whole bunch of people now, and Ananias and Sapphira watch Barnabas give his money to the church. And they watch the reaction of the people around. And they go, hey, we like that. That's pretty cool. This is cool, this thing that's going on now. This would be cool to have 10,000 people like telling stories about us and our generosity like they're telling stories about Barnabas and his generosity. It would be kind of cool to have, you know, this many people know who we were and be, be like, hey, did you hear what so-and-so did? Did you hear what Ananias and Sapphira did? Because they were probably hearing that story about Barnabas. This, this story about Barnabas was probably really well known. And so... They have a piece of property, they sell it, and apparently they start to let the word out about what they were going to do, right? It doesn't seem like it was a surprise to Peter when they showed up. It sounded like Peter already knew what was coming. And so they probably start to, oh, yeah, we're trying to sell this property. It's been so stressful. Oh, you're trying to sell property? What for? Oh, you know, we're just going to give all the money to Jesus. It's not a big deal. We're just super humble, right? But like they're kind of letting the word out, humble brag. Like, oh, yeah, we're just trying to figure out the tax thing because we're just giving so much money to God right now that like it's kind of stressful. And so the word kind of gets out. And then they come to Peter with the money and Peter like, by the Holy Spirit, has some discerning going on, something smelling fishy. And he's like, is that, is that all the money? And I was like, every last penny, just want to do what's right by God. Just give everything to him. And so what it is, is they wanted to appear as if they were one heart and one soul, but they actually didn't want to have one heart and one soul. Right? They have this desire to appear a certain way before people, but they don't want to actually be that way before people. And this is where it starts to get super weird. Peter says in verse 3, why has Satan filled your heart? And that's where we're going to start when we talk about Ananias and Sapphira. It's actually not a money issue at all. It's a heart issue. You see that? It's not about the money, right? If it was about the money, Peter would have been like, go home, get the rest of the money, then come back and God will kill you, right? So we get the dollars, right? But he didn't. Like, and that's how I died. And that money that they saved, interestingly enough, they didn't get to enjoy any of it, right? They're like, we'll keep this back. This will help us. And they didn't get to live to experience any of it. But they kept it back. And what, what happened was, as they kept it back, it was revealing something about their heart. The Holy Spirit doesn't tell Peter to go get the extra money. The, the Holy Spirit tells Peter there's something wrong with their hearts. Their hearts are off. In fact, if you go through the teachings of Jesus, you'll find something interesting. As you work through the teachings of Jesus, there's only two things that Jesus says reveal the heart of a person. Your money and your words. This is where your treasure is, there your heart will be, and the things that proceed out of the mouth come from within. 
right? So your money and your words are the things that reveal your heart. So the fact that they are handling their money this way reveals a heart issue. And that's the issue that God is going to make such a big deal about. He's like, there's something off in your heart. And that's why I'm making this big deal. That's why I'm saying, get out of the street. Don't, don't run out there. It's not okay. Because there's something wrong with Ananias and Sapphira's heart. If you want to know where someone's heart is, look at the things they spend their money on. Look at the motivations behind where their money goes and where their money doesn't go. Right? You could tell me until you're blue in the face that something means something to you. Your checkbook will tell me what really means something to you. Half of you are like, checkbook? Yeah, we used to write stuff on paper, right? Like, <laughs> bank statement, you know? <laughs> Log in, right? I heard this thing today. This guy was like, if you would have told me when I was 10 that my whole life growing up would be passwords, I would have been like, cool. And I'm like, it's not cool. It sucks. I forget them all the time. Anyway, right? Like, if you look at your bank account, like, the places where money goes and the places where money doesn't go, actually tells you what's really important to your heart. And it reveals something pretty serious about their hearts. This much is obvious. It's completely unacceptable to God. Whatever is going on in their hearts, it's God's like, nope, this can't last for any, any amount of time. We can't overlook it. We can't say this is OK. We can't be like, yes, no big deal. Move on. Get it next time. None of that. This is completely unacceptable to God. And he's so opposed to this kind of heart, he doesn't leave any confusion out of the West. Is this OK? Is this not OK? God's like, no, no, no. I'm going to make it super clear so everybody understands this type of heart is not OK. This behavior is not permissible under any circumstances. So what is it about their hearts that is so far away from where it should be? What is it? I think if we take a second and think through the story, it's pretty easy to see. Uh, let's think about this for a second. Let's make up a world, right? Church ends today. I say, you know, see you next week, 10 AM. Woo! And you guys go, yeah. You go high five somebody, give them a hug. And uh, you're sitting there talking with them after church. And then somebody else comes up. And while you're talking to this person, the other person starts to tell that person you're talking to a lie about you while you're standing there. What would you do in that situation? You go, <clears throat> I'm standing right here. And that's not true. Would that be like a little bit offensive? Like it's a little bit offensive that somebody would tell a lie about you. It's like doubly offensive that they would tell a lie about you while you're standing right there. Like, do you not know that I can hear you? Do you not know who I am? Do you, what, how, this, what, what, this is not okay. It's not okay at all. And here's what Peter is pointing out about their actions. He says, you lied to God. You lied to God. You didn't just lie to humans. You lied to God. God is present in the gathering of his people. To come into this place and act as if God is not present, to act as if God does not know, to act as if God cannot hear, is really insulting 
to God and to do it intentionally, intentionally like in front of him is blatantly insulting. It's like a whole different level. Like in the story, if someone is telling that lie in front of you, and at first you might, maybe they don't know who I am, maybe they don't know I can hear them, but to tell a lie concerning me is one thing, while I can hear it in my presence is a whole nother thing. And the Bible tells us that the gathering of the people of God, he is present in. This is the body of Christ. We are the representation of God on this planet. And you can, you can fall into this trap where church becomes just this thing you do and you don't realize you're walking into the presence of God in a different and special way. And Ananias and Sapphira were acting as if God wasn't there. Like they thought they were just lying to people. Like, oh, this will be great. We'll lie to them. We'll keep the money for ourselves. They'll think we're awesome. And Peter's like, no, no, you're lying to God. God's here. Don't forget that God is here. It's a really big deal. It's a really big blessing if you came in this morning and you're like, I need some encouragement. I need some hope. I need some help. I need some direction. My life's not going the way I wanted it to. I need the grace of repentance. I need him to reveal something about my heart that can make me have a better future and a hope. And that is a great, great truth this morning that the presence of God is here. If you're on the other side of it, that is a terrifying truth. If you walked in intentionally planning on being hypocritical this morning, you should know the presence of God is here as well. It's not intended to be fearful. It's intended to be helpful unless you treat it the wrong way, right? My kid's 11 and we are super good friends almost all of the time, right? So we'll be talking and he'll be like, ha ha, yeah. We'll be joking back and forth. He'll be like, ha ha. And then he'll say something really, really wrong, right? Like not like an F word or something. Like I made that sound worse than it was. But he'll just be like, you're so stupid, dad. And like, actually don't, no, that, that's over the line, right? Like we were good, but I'm still your dad and you're still 11 and you just don't get to call me stupid. Right? And so this is one of those moments where, like, you should be encouraged with the presence of the Lord. You should be helped. You should, like, this should feel good that the presence of the Lord is until you come with an incorrect heart and then God's message is loud and clear. Actually, that is over the line and not acceptable. Like, I'm here to help you. I'm here to be your savior. I'm here to be your God. I'm here to encourage your heart. Like, we're here on good terms, but if you come with the wrong heart, I'm just going to let you know. That's not okay. And they did not come with an understanding of the presence of the Lord. That was the first issue with their heart. Like they treated it as if God didn't know or God wasn't there or God couldn't see or God couldn't hear or God was oblivious or like just didn't care. Like, does God care what's going on? Does God care that you came to church this morning? Does God care what you do with your money? Yeah, he does care. He does care. He's not apathetic. Now, second thing about their heart that's revealed in the story. Go back to our hypothetical story. The person tells a lie in front of you. You say, excuse me, I'm standing right here and I can hear you. And they turn to you and say, you're a good person. You'll forgive me. I'll punch you in the neck, right? Like, I might have forgiven you until you said that. 
right? Like nobody is under the assumption that you're never going to be lied about in this world, right? Are you? Is that a surprise to somebody? Like people say hurtful things about you, maybe intentionally, maybe not intentionally. Like this just happens. People say some things about you and maybe they come to you later and they'll be like, hey, I said this thing about you. I am really sorry. I didn't understand what you were going through. Will you forgive me? Then you go, yes, I forgive you. But if you're standing there while they're telling the lie about you, you go, actually, that's not true. And they look at you and go, you'll have grace on me. You'll forgive me. You're nice. No big deal. You're like, it just became a big deal, actually. Right? And the theology of so many people is that the grace of God just covers everything, which it does. But it is not permission to just go out and do whatever you feel like doing. Okay? Now, I'm not trying to like heap burdens of like uh, rule following or earning your salvation on you right now. But if my daughter, while we're playing tag, runs out into the street, I go, Jordan, get out of the street right now. And she comes, I'm sorry, Daddy, I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay. But you can't ever do that again. There's consequences to running out in the street that I don't want to endure as your father and you don't want to endure because you're two and you and a car are going to be a terrible match. So like, this is okay. I will forgive you, but you need to understand the seriousness of what just took place. And Ananias and Sapphira are coming Maybe with this theology of permissive grace, like, yeah, it's not the right thing to do, but we're still going to do it anyway. In fact, not only are we going to do it anyway, we're going to plan on doing it anyway. We're going to plan on being hypocritical. And God's like, no, you're not. That's not okay. It, you're not going to run out on the street again and just like think that that's, that's okay with everybody. Like, I care about my church and my people too much to allow that behavior to continue. And when we come to the realization of the goodness of God in the cross, we realize that the cross was as brutal and awful as it was because of God's hatred for sin. Right? Don't misunderstand that when God forgave you your sin and God gave you his grace and God gave you the hope of heaven that he somehow doesn't care about sin. Go watch that movie, The Passion of the Christ. Go watch as they beat him and they whip him and hang him on the cross. Like the reason that was as terrible as it was is because sin is that big of a deal to God. It's not that he doesn't care. The fact that he forgave you is an incredible act of mercy and grace. But it's not a truth of permissive grace. It's not just an open invitation to do whatever you want because none of it matters. It's not an open invitation to be like, yeah, we can plan on sin and expect that to be okay with God. So here's where we'll finish. I'm five minutes over. I apologize. Give me three more minutes and we'll be done. We started this message with the idea that people are often scared of the wrong things, right? Here's the message from Acts chapter five. Don't be scared of the wrong things. Ananias and his wife were scared of the wrong things. They were worried about what people thought about them instead of what God thought about them. They were worried about appearing united instead of actually being united. They were worried about the condition of their status instead of the condition of their hearts. 
They walked into the gathering of the people of God worrying about what other people thought about them instead of worrying about where their hearts were really at. We need to train ourselves to be fearful of the things that God tells us to be fearful of and honest. Because as the American church, we're not great at this. The Bible says stuff like uh, the love of money and anxiety and pride and sexual immorality are all things that we should be on our guard against. And we, we are very rarely on our guard against these things. We actually invite these things in. We pay for a TV subscription that pipes sexual immorality into our home. Or we celebrate the love of money. Or we, we, we explain away anxiety and say, like, oh, it's really rational. Like, we get it. Let's talk about it. Like, let's dive into our anxiety. Instead of the things that Bible says we should be on our guard against, being on our guard against them. And one of them, Acts chapter 5 is super clear on this, never be okay with living with a duplicitous heart. Never allow yourself to become comfortable with a heart that only wants to appear a certain way instead of actually be right before God. A heart that is perfectly comfortable with intentional hypocrisy is a loaded gun. And you should treat it that way. The reason this is a big deal to God is because they were so okay with something they should have never been okay with. The reason this is a huge deal to God is because this was very serious condition of your heart to be unaffected by hypocrisy. To look at themselves as the word of God reveals their heart and exposes this to ourselves and go, oh yeah, I'm a hypocrite, no big deal. That's not okay. God thinks being comfortable with hypocrisy is a really big deal a big enough deal that he put it in the first three pages of his church description in the book of Acts. You realize that? Like at the very beginning, he's like, this isn't okay. This heart that acts like I'm not here and it's okay to plan on deceiving me and, and playing this religious gamesmanship where you appear one way and aren't a certain way. Like the, none of that is okay. So what's gonna happen is this. You read the word of God. You're gonna pray to the Holy Spirit. And he's going to reveal parts of your heart someday. Maybe it's today, maybe it's not. Maybe it's a month from now, maybe it's five years from now. He's like, you're being hypocritical here. You're not being scared of the things I'm telling you to be scared of. That's when we, we pray for the grace of God and humility. Say, God, grant me the grace of repentance. Let me turn around. Give me the, the wisdom to change direction. Don't ever let me be comfortable with a hypocritical heart because it's that big of a deal to God. God said we should be very concerned of this, not just for him. It's also for your good and his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your words, and I thank you for uh, the things it warns us against, uh, not because you're trying to beat us down or or cause us to feel really terrible about ourselves, Lord, but because you want more from our lives than sometimes we even want for our own lives. Lord, you're calling us to a higher degree of joy and purpose and meaning than, than maybe we even want for ourselves, Lord. And I pray that if you're revealing parts of our hearts that have been hypocritical, I pray that you would give us the grace to repent. I pray that you would give us the grace to acknowledge that and turn around. We had, uh, we ask it in your mighty and precious name.